Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Now, here's an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, the old number fives. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs.
from their brand new release and we've got Brock Alexander on the line right now. Hey Brock, how you doing? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Now, this is the first time you've come on our show and we always like to give our fans an opportunity to get to know who you are and the best way to do that is to look at your story, where you came from. So give us a story of the old number fives and of Brock Alexander. Well, the long story uh, put to a short amount of time would be uh, my mom is an elementary music teacher, and she met my dad, who uh, was playing in the band and stayed out of Vietnam by staying in college and played in the band, and they met, and um, so when I was born, music was around my house 24-7. My mom not only was a elementary music teacher but uh taught private piano lessons at home and so after school i would go to her classroom and just play around with instruments and then we would take kids home and she would teach them you know piano lessons and we would get ice cream on the way home and so my first instrument was obviously piano and i was traumatized because <laughs> Uh, the lady they made me take piano lessons from lived out on a farm and she had these big farm dogs. And so every week I was very apprehensive because I didn't practice enough and then I had to go confront these dogs to even get in the house. And so I uh, shied away from piano as much as I could. And then when I got to, uh, to elementary school, a couple years before you start kind of formal like uh, elementary school, middle school band, my parents said, well, you're going to have braces, so you're not playing trumpet or trombone, so do you want to play the drums? And of course I said yes. So I started taking kind of like private little snare drum lessons in, I'd say like second, third grade, not really knowing what that was at the time. It was kind of like piano lessons, didn't really want to do it at the time but I did and then it turned into a uh, choir like a kind of like had to audition to be in this choir and I didn't want to do it but my mom was a piano teacher and 
the auditions were held in her classroom at school, and so I did that for a few years, and um, then I played marimba and all sorts of percussion in elementary school, middle school, high school, and then by that time, my friends, and I obviously had a drum set, but it wasn't just playing snare drum and drum set, and then at that time, some of my friends started to pick up guitar, and I, you know, was like, I wanted to be out front, not necessarily stuck behind the drums, so I found my mom's acoustic guitar in the basement, and I said, I'm going to put that by my drums so it looks cooler, and then I wanted to try to pick it up, but at that point, I had taken so many music classes that I wanted to teach myself guitar, so I kind of went about it on my own, and spent a bunch of time in my bedroom, and then became a guitar player, I guess, in high school, and still like you know having all the percussion elements of my background and then the, the vocal elements of my background and then as I got a little bit older um turned into basically me wanting to be Eric Clapton from Cream or Jimi Hendrix or Stevie Ray Vaughan and the most economical way to do that was also just have a trio you know find a bass player and a drummer and so I would say as late as or as long ago as probably 2005 or six, the old number fives was me with a bass player and a drummer pretending to kind of do that vein of music. And then I did that for about two, three years. I moved away to California and uh, went into kind of like recording studio mode. And I worked in a few studios and a post-production place in California. And then when I moved back to Kansas City in 2011, it's basically when the old number five started. And then uh been that way ever since. There's had a, a few different personnel changes since then, but basically going on 10 years of a trio, and then myself, a bass player and a drummer. And uh, this last album that we kind of did was my first solo excursion into having some other players performing some of the songs live with us. So... um for our third album, uh, it's a little bit different kind of jaunt for me personally. So okay, well, let's, that's a great long story, I guess. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about the release. Um, when you were doing, you know, putting together this this release and getting ready to go into the studio and that, what was kind of your goal for it? What were you looking to achieve with this particular release? Um, so this is our third record, and um, personally. The old number fives put out um, some records in, I think it was 2013, 2015 or 16. And then I actually put out some songs that were like B-sides for me and the band at the time. Um, uh, a year later, it's so like 2019 or something like that. But we had some personal changes and I wanted to personally kind of marriage the two ideas of what I had done previously with the old number fives and then that thing that turned into be a little bit more singer songwriter but still blues and kind of rock and roll but just a little bit more um i don't know how to describe it but a little more personal maybe and so i wanted to marry those two ideas and so going in a lot of these songs were either very old and i had had them kind of written out in my head and even demoed and, you know, recorded and, and done some things personally 
for those songs. And then songs that were kind of B-sides to those ideas that I was like, oh, this is cool. This, this could be cool. And with the personnel changes came the avenue to like include those songs again. And um, it was a really cool, I mean, I, I think so. It's a really cool marriage of like some older ideas with some brand new ideas and some things that were done for the first time. And I think that shows the excitement, some, you know, to the listener because to some of those performers on some of those tracks, it was the second or third time they were hearing that song idea too. So they're just as much excited to hear it as the listener is for the first or second time. So, Okay. Well, now let's talk about um, your process as a songwriter. Uh, when you sit down to write, what is kind of your method that you use that allows you to tap into the muse? I was a um, creative writing major in college in a former life uh, in the University of Kansas. And um, the big thing that I've come to find out that is like every song is kind of like a poem. And a poem can be long, short, fast, slow. It can be whatever you want it to be. Very malleable, if that makes sense. But also they don't have to connect or they can connect. So um, I try to use that anytime I write anything. And for me, a lot of the time it will be kind of music first, like either guitar or actually currently trying to get a little bit better at doing that on a piano. But applying it different ways and trying it different ways. Um, and each time you do it, you kind of learn a little bit more about what you're thinking but also you kind of start crossing things out as far as how you want it to sound. And I think the interesting thing is as you continue to write songs, you want to outdo yourself. And sometimes songs come very quickly and it's over just like that. And it's like, that's the song. And other times you have to whittle away at an idea and both are very valid. And so it's just being... I think kind of accepting of both ways that it happens and like creativity doesn't always come in flashes sometimes like I said you have to will away at it but sometimes it's really really easy and you're not really even sure that you need to try as hard next time but you know it's the kind of like we maybe spoke about just a second ago it's the everyday chopping wood and uh, after a while you notice how much you've accomplished sort of thing okay now um you know a lot of songwriters they kind of have a mental separation between lyric and melody you know lyrics are structured either with a story continuity rhyme meter all of those things but melody is a little different some writers like to work off the groove some like to work off the chord structure or even the the cadence of the of the lyric themselves can suggest where the melody goes. What do you do to kind of find your melodies? A lot of the time I'll use just my initial flash of inspiration and just get on the cell phone like everybody does and do a little voice memo. And usually what's funny is those initial ideas are always the best and a lot of the time when I describe like whittling away at songs, it's trying to somehow recapture that initial spark. 
And so for me as a songwriter, a lot of the times it's it's not worrying about the words themselves, but more like the association or the inspiration that that song kind of came from. So if it's a nonsensical word that makes it go round for you, then that's fine. Or if it's something very distinct that you can picture or feel uh, like a piece of art, you know, you can look at it and get the emotion out of it immediately. If it's like that, that's fine too, but it's kind of whatever helps the situation move forward for me. And so a lot of the times it has nothing to do with the music or the words at all. It's kind of the feeling that the whole thing points to. Okay. Now, uh, you had mentioned that you use your cell phone to capture voice memos and, and you know, those momentary ideas. Um, and every songwriter has their little toolkit, the one that, you know, they use when they sit down to write, whether it's just a pad or a pen or they got a home recording studio or they use Master Writer or whatever the case may be. What are some of the tools in your toolkit? Like, uh, usually... I usually go after just my initial like voice and guitar on an acoustic guitar or electric or whatever is in front of me. That's the most important thing is wherever that inspiration hits you, it's usually really important to at least get it down or get it um, documented somehow. So it's really whatever's in front of you at the time. And then I would say I take my ideas and I have some basic drums and amps mic'd up in my basement and I just take it downstairs and I went into I go into Pro Tools because I I uh, went to a recording school actually and so I have a little bit of experience as far as like how to do that stuff and so I go in and record a lot of the demos myself before I ever take it to the idea of taking it to a studio and that is kind of like a good analogy for me is always just, you know, like you can brush your teeth at home, but sometimes you got to go to the dentist to like really get a good deep clean. That's the same with music is like I can record songs until I'm blue in the face in my basement, but that doesn't mean I can have the quality that I can if I went to like an Abbey Road or something like that. So I feel like there's songs that never make it to the studio that were really, really good in my basement. And I don't know that I can ever recapture the magic in the studio that I could in my basement. And then vice versa. There's obviously things that are far more exciting and sound sonically far better in studio than they do in my basement. So uh, they're both just different, different venues or avenues to record. Okay. Well, let's talk about that process in the studio. Um, when you get in that environment, what is what is your? How do you work in that environment to kind of capture your sound? Because you know a song is is something to say, but going in the studio creates the identity, the the voice, the you know the texture of that particular song and of you as an artist. How do you capture your sound in that environment? I would say it's different. For every song and every circumstance, and again, that's just fine, but it's also learning how to harness certain aspects of what you're trying to achieve, because a lot of songs all write and perform and record in my basement, say, to just a click track, and if you're a capable musician, you can do that fairly well, and then you can build multi-track, you know, in Pro Tools or Logic or GarageBand, 
based on what you just recorded, but that doesn't necessarily have the um, the human rock and roll, if you will, uh, aspect to it to to maybe a live performance that has a little push and pull, and maybe be a better description um, of the tempo and the emotion of that performance. And so there's certain songs that I've sworn I needed to do to a click and everybody needed to do to a click. So the band, as we're recording maybe live, we all have a, a metronome in our headphones. And so in an, in an interesting way, this, is, this recording that we did is the first time that I've ever done a band where I didn't have the metronome in my ears. And we put the metronome just in the drummer's ears. And he was like, I got it. So if I push or pull, you guys are listening to me, not the metronome. Right. So personally, this is the first time that we've ever, or I've ever, kind of allowed myself to do that. And so there's a few of these songs on this record in particular where I invited a bunch of people that I respected and were friends and, like, musicians to come in on one of the sessions. And um, in particular... Taylor Smith and Howard Mahan and uh, TJ Earnhardt on keyboards and so two guitars and another keyboard player just to add something and I didn't really give them any advice I kind of said like here's the basic structure like they maybe had heard one of my demos but I didn't really give them any information and so the two or three takes that we did like I said previously it was it was cool for them probably because it was the second or third time they heard it, but also for the listener as well, you kind of feel that excitement based on you're not really sure what's about to happen. <laughs> and so it's a calculated move of in the studio of how precise do you want to be and how many times do you want to redo? Or like in particular, the last song that we did, um, I think it's What Does That Prove?, it was just, I had done that song a hundred different ways in my basement. And then even in the studio, we had done it with a piano overdub. We had done it with a full band. We had done it with heavy drums. And then in the end, we were like, let's try it with just acoustic guitar, just myself. And I did it like three times. We were running out of time that particular evening in the studio. And I did it three or four times. And we kind of took one of the takes that maybe had a few mistakes honestly and it just felt better than any of the other ways that we had tried to paint that picture so and then in a weird way that little mistake turned into the inspiration for my that's how we got the album title moment to lose was from the little kind of mistake that i did at the very end of that song and so it was like oh, perfect but you don't get one or the other without allowing yourself that freedom to kind of make those mistakes sometimes. Okay. Now, um, tell me a little bit about the lineup on this. Who's who's playing besides the special guests you already mentioned? So basically the core band is myself on guitar and vocals, Adam Watson on the drums as well as vocals, and then Ole Bowden on the bass guitar, and he also does vocals, background vocals. And so, for pretty much every instance of this album, it was the three of us playing these songs. And then, certain songs, like I said, uh, we probably divided it into two or three different 
bigger sessions at the studio. And um, two of those sessions, I invited other people, Taylor Smith, Howard Mahan, to come and just kind of run through some of those songs with us. And then one instance, I actually had uh, Taylor Smith come and perform just some of the solos on, on the record as well. So it kind of, again, went song by song basis as far as which one needed what. But the majority of the things was just the trio expanded upon, is how I would describe it. Okay. Now, um, of course, once you get a project recorded, you have to create the buzz. You got to create, you know, uh, press. You got to put it out the radio. And you're working with Frank Rozak from Frank Rozak Promotions. Tell me a little bit about that relationship. I actually met Frank in Memphis. Tennessee at the International Blues Challenge, I believe, uh, I want to say, yeah, I want to say 2016, 2015, sometime in there, and I actually have his card in my basement amongst uh, a multitude of cards that I remember having a conversation with him then, and um, maybe a conversation or two after that, but then we really didn't speak, and... Uh, I would say a couple of years, and when I kind of had this project finished up, I knew it was a direction I wanted to kind of move on because this is the Old Number Five's third album we've put out, and then personally I put out two other little things that you can find but never really pushed them as far as uh, radio promotion or anything like that. And so I knew I wanted to take this that avenue, and so... Um, I gave Frank a call and everything sounded good. And so in a weird way, it's like, you know, the art and the music is one aspect of the music business, but then there's the business part of the music business. So um, I know there's people that can do that far better than me. And so sometimes I guess uh, getting out of your own way or also just investing in yourself lends itself to greater success or, you know, just greater uh, notoriety, if that's the word. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the music business. Um, it is a strange world out there, and we all know going into the studio and recording music is not cheap. Uh, and and we're faced now with a consumer that really has embraced streaming as a way to consume music. They're paying less, they're, they're getting more music, um, and they've actually shifted their perception of what recorded music is now it's no longer a product that they can go into the store and purchase it's now a service that they expect to be there at the flick of their finger you know they can listen to anything that's been recorded in the last hundred years if they hear about an artist they they believe they can go up and just find it listen and get a sense of who the artist is at at a moment's notice that shift in perception has really affected the independent artist. How has it affected you as an artist so far? Uh, it's a slippery slope to describe your uh, your life's vocation as something that people pay, you know, $8 for per month. But at the same time, the Internet has allowed someone like me to put that music online and so it's very double-edged and I as much as I don't um, don't agree with the act 
that, you know, like major artists like the Foo Fighters or Taylor Swift aren't receiving their royalties from Spotify, I'm not making enough money from Spotify or any other streaming service to pay my own bills. And so that doesn't necessarily bother me. As a musician, I make the majority of my money playing shows, and that's why I play music in the first place is the fact that you can make some recordings and maybe make some money off of that to pay for itself seems grand, but otherwise that's never affected me and it's probably not going to financially make or break me in my lifetime, at least. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for the platforms that are available to artists of my level. But at the end of the day, I think the saddest thing is that um, a lot of kids don't give it the time that it takes to learn an instrument or become good at something. And so what you think is so easy isn't so easy. And um, again, it's, it's double-edged because at the same time that doesn't necessarily affect me because like you can't, you know, when I'm hungry per se, to want to play music, I, I play it, and that's how I scratch that itch, and so I'm grateful for the people and the, the venues and the relationships that I have to be able to go play music live in person and make mistakes and come out on the other side with a little bit of cash in my pocket, maybe enough to finance the next original music, and if you can get that far, I think I've made it, you know, I, uh, I'm able to play and perform my own music on a consistent basis, but also play cover songs that I like and people want to hear and get the best of all those circumstances and still be an artist, you know? So if that extra stuff happens, that's great, but, you know, people are still going to want to see live music someday, and uh, the computers aren't always the best venue for that. Well, you know, it's interesting because when the pandemic hit, you know, of course, touring was shut down. A lot of musicians started to go up on the Internet and, and started doing live streaming. They started to work their social media and they had time, you know, because let's face it, they weren't on the road. And they all of a sudden the fans really started to realize that they were getting a more intimate glimpse into the world that these musicians really live in you know it's you know they they would do a live stream from their living room so you get a chance to see you know the living room of the of the artist that you're listening to you know and, and you see the the treadmill they use to hang their clothes on you know mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of actually using the treadmill um but you know you get this intimate look and you know artists were starting to realize this that There is this reality show mentality, I think, that a lot of fans have been acclimated to, you know, because we're we're so hit with this whole reality show thing on television and so forth. And that if you look at the Internet, it is a broadcast network and every artist has the ability to create their own reality show and create a sense of celebrity that would eventually, when we get back to live music again, may even attract new fans and new people to come in out and see them live, or in the case of you know that whole um, celebrity thing, to see them in person. You know, what do you think mm-hmm. of that? And and how are you negotiating this world of content creation? 
I don't want to sound like a uh, pessimist, but I don't really care. It, uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like the reality that I live in. And I'll just say that I, as a 36-year-old man, I have twin boys who are four years old and a wife. And my drummer, Adam Watson, has twin boys who are three-year-olds and just had a new baby boy and a wife. And Ole Bowden, our bass player, does not have twin boys, but we're doing our damnedest. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and so the gift for me is to have my family allow me the ability to go have a musical experience in front of five people or 5,000 people. It doesn't really matter to me. I get to go live my dream every time I get to go perform. And honestly, the internet is not the avenue. Maybe I just sound old, but the internet is not the avenue for me to fear, like to feel that catharsis, like a feeling. So, um, the internet's great and I appreciate everything the internet does for myself like on a day to day basis or music related but at the same time Facebook isn't going to make or break my music career and neither is anything else because I have you know my hands in front of me and music gear in front of me and hopefully there are still places that people employ places like you know that employ people like me to go perform music for people and that can be on any scale and i think at any scale that's a win for that not only that listener but that artist that gets to go perform and whether that's a cover song that they've always wanted to do or their own music or their own music that they've done for 10 years like that's a win either way okay. and so everything else is just about selling something you know but at the end of the day for the musician or for me i mean i'm i'm still going through the motions and doing the things and and uh hopefully get that experience by just playing the music all right well you know i i really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us and uh we're going to give everyone out there uh, an indie blues double shot from your release and uh you guys turn up loud Open the windows. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun. <laughs> Thank you.
Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Make you shout now, honey. I'm gonna make- 